Anthony Battaglia. I've, uh, I'm the development director for the Center for Inquiry, and I've been uh, responsible, along with a number of staff and volunteers, putting together this conference. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, we're ending on what I think is perhaps, for my estimation, the most exciting note. We're ending with a, a debate, a naturalist theist debate. And uh, I'm particularly interested in this debate because it features two young scholars, two people on opposing sides of the issues of faith and non-belief, who are going to, who interestingly enough are friends. They have known each other for over 10 years and they actually last debated nine years ago. Debates are very important to us. The idea of debate is obviously very important to the concept of free inquiry. When you think of free inquiry, you think of analyzing issues, and what better way to get at issues than to have two highly skilled, highly intelligent, learned individuals making their presentations on their side of the issues. So with that brief introduction, I'd like to mention that this debate is sponsored in conjunction with our Campus Freethought Alliance, which is a national, excuse me, international network of campus groups and individuals promoting free thought throughout high schools and colleges in America. And I'd like to introduce the director of that program, Ms. Amanda Chesworth. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. This is a, quite an exciting time for the Campus Free Thought Alliance. This is the launch of our debate circuit. It's going to start off as a national debate circuit going uh, across the country at various uh, our campus groups, at conferences, in the community, and we're hoping to have a, a regular series of debates on a variety of religious topics and non-religious topics, anything of interest to free thinkers. We're hoping to work with people like Dr. Phil Fernandez and uh, provide these debates for the public. And if you would like any more information about that, we have a table outside and it has a preliminary debate kit that we're giving to our student groups, hoping that they'll take part in our debates. Debates can be very uh, successful as far as bringing in the crowd and they can educate people on the free thought movement and raise awareness that we exist. Um, we have several professional debaters among our organization and we also have a lot of students that would like to debate, and we have uh, panel discussions and what we call a one-man show where one person, the audience will be the other side, and they question and challenge the debater. And we're hoping that this will become a regular event across the country in, uh, for how, however many years that we can, we can provide it. So welcome and enjoy. Thank you. We're very fortunate today to have a skilled debater as our moderator. In fact, he's someone from just down the road in Raleigh. Dr. Doug Jessup is professor of philosophy at North Carolina State. And uh, if those of you uh, are the kind that check out the Internet Infidels website, you'll notice that many of his sterling debates have been chronicled by the infidels. And uh, he's debated many, many people. And he says that one of his most exciting debates was the existence of God would against William Lane Craig. So I will now turn everything over to him and we will commence the debate. Dr. Jessup. Thank you. Our topic is naturalism versus theism. Where does the evidence point? Uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to hear these uh, two skilled debaters, uh, Jeffrey J. Lauder, 
uh, President of Internet Infidels Incorporated, and Dr. Phil Fernandez of the Institute for Biblical Defense. Our format will be 20-minute opening statements, followed by 12-minute rebuttals, followed by 8-minute second rebuttals, and then 5-minute closing statements. Uh, in the interest of moving things along, I would urge you uh, to refrain from any uh, heckling uh, and ranting and raving uh, at points you don't agree with, as well as uh, demonstrative uh, approvals, so we can try to keep things moving fairly smoothly. After the debates and the rebuttals and the closing statements, we'll take a brief intermission, uh, five minutes to five or ten minutes or so, and then we'll have 45 minutes for questions and answers, which can be directed immediately to the debaters. Um, Mr. Lauder will be leading off uh, with a 20-minute uh, opening statement, and I guess it's time to get down to business. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank the Society of Humanist Philosophers for giving me this opportunity, and I would like to thank everyone who helped organize this debate, especially Anthony Battaglia. I'm also very pleased to share the stage with my friend Dr. Phil Fernandez, who I've known for at least nine years and who I know will prove a formidable opponent today. Today you've been asked to think about two very different ways of interpreting the world, naturalism and theism. By naturalism, I mean the belief that there are no supernatural beings. If naturalism is true, there is no God, no devil, no angels, no heaven, and no hell. Naturalists include people who call themselves atheists, materialists, secular humanists, and skeptics. By theism, I mean the belief that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good being called God who allegedly created the universe and transcends the world yet is imminent in it. Now, the topic before us is, when you weigh the evidence for theism against the evidence for naturalism, which way, on balance, does the evidence point? In defense of a naturalistic answer to that question, I'm going to present eight lines of evidence which are more likely given naturalism than theism. Number one, Naturalism offers the best explanation for the physical dependence of minds. Michael Tooley, a highly respected philosopher at the University of Colorado at Boulder, has stated five lines of evidence in support of this claim. First, certain injuries to, or diseases of, the brain make it impossible for a person to have any mental states at all. For example, think of someone in the final stages of Alzheimer's disease. My slide shows the difference in brain tissue between a healthy brain on the left and one with Alzheimer's on the right. Second, when an individual's brain is directly stimulated and put into a certain physical state, this causes the person to have a corresponding experience. Third, other injuries to the brain destroy various mental capacities. Which capacity is destroyed is tied directly to the particular region of the brain that was damaged. Fourth, the mental capacity of animals becomes more complex as their brains become more complex. And fifth, within any given species, the development of mental capacities is correlated with the development of neurons in the brain. In light of the evidence I just presented, Paul Draper, a highly respected agnostic philosopher, concludes that, quote, Consciousness and personality are highly dependent on the brain. Nothing mental happens without something physical happening, end quote. 
But that strongly implies that the mind cannot exist independently of physical arrangements of matter. And this is exactly what we would expect if naturalism is true. However, if theism is true, God is a disembodied mind. God's mind is not in any sense dependent on physical arrangements of matter. But if nothing mental happens without something physical happening, that is evidence against the existence of any being who is supposed to have a disembodied mind, including God. Therefore, the physical, physical dependence of minds is unlikely if theism is true, and that's the first reason why I think naturalism is true. Number two, naturalism offers the best explanation for the relationship between complex and simple living things. According to the National Academy of Sciences, there are five scientific facts which support evolution. Since my time is limited, I will discuss only three of those facts. The fossil record, biogeography, and molecular biology. First, the fossil evidence indicates that complex living things are the gradually modified descendants of relatively simple living things. Negatively, the fossil record disconfirms creationism. It shows that living things were not simultaneously created. We only find simple living things in the lowest layers of the fossil record. As we move forward through history, we find fishes, then amphibians, then reptiles, and then birds and mammals. Positively, the fossil record contains transitional forms. For example, we now have fossils documenting the evolution of the whale. Obviously, the artist put some flesh on the bones in my slide, but the bones show intermediates, such as the animals in the top right and bottom left of my slide. They had functional hind legs and could move on land like seals, but they also propelled themselves as whales do by moving the tail up and down. Finally, in the bottom right, you see a fully aquatic early whale. We've even found fossils of early whales with hind legs that were structurally complete, but too small to actually function. Second, evolution explains the relationship between geographical barriers and living things. For example, although land mammals could survive in Hawaii, they are not found there natively because they evolved on continents and couldn't cross the Pacific. Or consider the continents of Australia and South America. Again, although, say, apes could survive on either continent, apes evolved after the continents of Australia and South America broke away from earlier landmasses. Third, evolution explains the genetic similarities and differences between different species. For example, the genes of present-day humans and chimps are 98% identical. But it's even better than that. Human beings and chimps even share something called pseudogenes, genes that are not functional today, but apparently served a purpose in the past. The most plausible explanation of these genetic similarities and differences is that all living things share a common ancestor. Now, if evolution is true, then God is not needed to account for the various life forms that exist today and have existed in the past. And therefore, evolution is compatible with naturalism. If theism is true, however, evolution may or may not be true. Evolution is logically compatible with theism. God could have used evolution, but God could have used many other methods than evolution, methods which are ruled out by naturalism. Moreover, given that 99% of the species that have ever lived on Earth are now extinct, evolution seems like a pretty strange way for an all-powerful being to create living organisms. Did God have to keep experimenting until he got things right? 
Thus, evolution is some evidence for naturalism over theism. Number three, naturalism offers the best explanation for the biological role of physical pain and pleasure. Suppose you are hiking in the forest. As you come over a steep hill, you discover that there is a blazing forest fire headed your way. Since fire is painful and potentially deadly, you would avoid the fire at all costs and thereby increase your chances of survival. The naturalistic explanation for this is obvious. If human beings are the products of evolution by natural selection, we would expect physical pain to aid survival. But of course, not all physical pain and pleasure is biologically useful. For example, consider the following description of the pain and suffering caused by Ebola. Within days of infection, Ebola patients suffer from soaring temperature and excruciating joint and muscle pain. The throat is so sore that swallowing anything, including one's own saliva, is intolerable. The skin becomes like soft bread. It can be spread apart with one's fingers and blood oozes out. Victims choke as the sloughed off surfaces of their tongues and throats slide into their windpipes. Every body orifice bleeds. Even the eyeballs fill with blood that leaks down the cheeks. In the final stages, victims become convulsive, splashing blood all around as they twitch, shake, and thrash to their deaths. Ebola, according to science writer Richard Preston, is a perfect parasite because it transforms virtually every part of the body into a digested slime of virus particles. If there is a God, don't you think he could let Ebola victims suffer just a little bit less? If we had the power to do so, we would immediately alleviate their suffering. After all, if theism is true, God could fine-tune humans so that they experience pain only when it is necessary for some greater good. But if they're going to die anyway, what possible reason could God have for letting Ebola victims experience such agonizing pain until death? The chances that such a reason would intersect with the biological goal of survival, well, it's pretty slim. On naturalism, however, we would expect people to feel pain, even when the pain will not aid in survival. Evolution by natural selection is not an intelligent process. On naturalism, there seems to be no way for creatures to have evolved so that they only feel pain when it will aid survival. Therefore, the biological role of pain and pleasure is more likely on naturalism than theism, and that's my third reason for believing that naturalism is true. Number four, naturalism offers the best explanation for the flourishing and languishing of sentient beings. Only a fraction of living things, including the majority of sentient beings, thrive. In other words, very few living things have an adequate supply of food and water, are able to reproduce, avoid predators, and remain healthy. An even smaller fraction of organisms thrive for most of their lives, and almost no organisms thrive for all of their lives. If naturalistic evolution is true, this is what we'd expect. If all living things are in competition for limited resources, then the majority of those organisms will not survive long enough to thrive. Moreover, even those organisms that do thrive for much of their lives will, if they live long enough, deteriorate. As Paul Draper says, quote, a Darwinian world is inevitably cruel, especially to the young, the old, and the genetically less fortunate, end quote. 
However, if theism is true, why would God create a world in which all sentient beings savagely compete with one another for survival? Does anyone really believe that there could be a moral justification for this? The fact that so few sentient beings ever flourish is therefore more likely on naturalism than on theism. Number five, naturalism offers the best explanation for tragedies. On May 2nd of this year, there was a horrible accident involving a bus packed with members of a church youth group. Six girls and one man died as a result. What makes this a tragedy is that, as far as we can tell, no outweighing good came from this accident. I think all of us can probably think of other examples of tragedy in this sense. Yet, if theism is true, God could prevent tragedies in many different ways, ways that would not take away our free will, or our ability to develop moral character. For example, God could have prevented the recent earthquake in Turkey or the flood here in North Carolina without taking away anyone's moral freedom. And despite centuries of theological reflection by some of the greatest minds in history, most theistic philosophers now admit they have absolutely no idea why God allows tragedies like the church bus accident, the earthquake in Turkey, or the flood here in North Carolina to happen. Alvin Plantinga of Notre Dame University, a Christian philosopher who has attempted to defend theism against the problem of evil, admits, quote, many of the attempts to explain why God permits evil seem to me shallow, tepid, and ultimately frivolous. Of course, it's logically possible that God has a reason for allowing tragedies, a reason we mere humans don't understand. But it's also logical, logically possible that God has extra reasons for preventing tragedies, reasons we also do not understand. Clearly then, tragedies are improbable on theism. But if naturalism is true, there are no supernatural beings who care about our suffering. Thus, we would expect tragedies, and therefore tragedies are, are some evidence for naturalism and against theism. Number six. Naturalism offers the best explanation for God's silence in the face of tragedies. Imagine you have a three-year-old son with leukemia, and you have to bring him to the hospital twice a week to receive extremely painful chemotherapy treatments. In this case, his pain is for a greater good. The chemotherapy might actually save his life. But your son cries his eyes out every time you bring him to the hospital because the treatments are so painful. Although you try to explain to him why the chemotherapy is necessary, he just doesn't understand. So instead, you simply comfort him and remind him often that you love him. Just as loving parents would comfort their son while he was fighting leukemia, we would expect a loving God to comfort human beings who suffer as the result of tragedies. If theism is true, then God loves his creatures and wants all of his creatures to love him in return. However, many people find it hard to love God when they do not understand the reasons for their suffering and God seems so far away. In other words, even if God has a reason for allowing tragedies, he could at least comfort victims of suffering so that they know he loves him. Yet there are many many victims of tragedies who report not feeling God's comforting presence, and this includes theists. This is not at all what we would expect if theism were true. However, if naturalism is true, we would expect victims of tragedy not to experience God's comforting presence for the simple reason that there is no God. Thus, God's silence in the face of tragedies is much more probable on naturalism 
than on theism. Number seven, naturalism offers the best explanation for the variety of theistic claims worldwide. Religious believers hold a wide variety of beliefs about the supernatural and the nature of God. Besides Christianity, there are many other religions, including Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, to name just a few. All of these world religions make different claims about the nature of God and about the religious path God wants us to take. Now, let's suppose that you are an open-minded theist trying to decide which religious path to follow. Why should you choose one religious path over another? The answer to that question, well, it's far from obvious, right? But all this is pretty strange if theism is true. On theism, we would expect God to clearly reveal his plan for salvation so that there would be no confusion about which religious path to take. On naturalism, however, there is no God, and therefore no reason to expect religious believers to agree on anything. Thus, religious confusion is evidence for naturalism and against theism. Number eight, naturalism offers the best explanation for the reasonableness of non-belief. Suppose I told you that there was a woman named Jane who claims she is your long-lost sister, and she really wants to meet you. Days, weeks, even months go by, but you never actually meet her or even hear from her. You never get a letter, a phone call, a fax, an email message, a page, no blimp advertisements, absolutely nothing from her. In fact, the only evidence of her existence is that I claim she exists. Why haven't you heard from her? Well, maybe Jane's shy. She wants to meet you, but she's too embarrassed. Or maybe Jane's busy. She wants to get together with you, but she's a single mom working two, two full-time jobs just to make ends meet and doesn't have the time to meet with you. Just as you might be curious to meet Jane, there are many people, including myself, who don't believe in God, but who wish that some sort of a theistic God did exist. Now, the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 says that the existence of God is just obvious to everyone, even atheists and agnostics. But just think about that for a second. How do you prove that something is obvious to another person? Lots of non-believers claim that the existence of God is not obvious to them. Indeed, many non-believers claim that it is just obvious that it is not obvious that God exists. Why is this evidence for naturalism over theism? Because if theism is true, we would expect non-belief in God to be unreasonable. Whatever reasons Jane may have for not revealing herself to you do not apply to God. God is not shy. God is not busy, and so forth. But if naturalism is true, there is no God, and we would expect non-belief to be reasonable. Therefore, I think reasonable non-belief is more likely on naturalism than on theism, and that's my eighth line of evidence for naturalism. So in sum, we've seen eight lines of evidence that naturalism is true. If Dr. Fernandez wants to believe theism instead, then he's got to provide evidence of his own for theism and then show why that evidence outweighs all of the evidence for naturalism which I've given. Unless he does that, I think it's pretty clear that the evidence points towards naturalism.
I would like to express my gratitude to Anthony Battaglia for arranging this debate and my good friend Jeff Louder for agreeing to debate me. I have chosen to utilize a cumulative case for God. This cumulative case will examine several different aspects of human experience that are more adequately explained by theism, the belief in a personal God, than by naturalism, the rejection of the belief in a personal God. The thesis I seek to defend is as follows. It is more reasonable to be a theist than it is to be an atheist. For purposes of this debate, I will define God as the eternal, uncaused cause of all else that exists. This being is personal, i.e. a moral and intelligent being, and unlimited in all his attributes. This being is separate from his creation, transcendent, but he is also involved with it, imminent. In short, I will argue that the God of theism exists. Number one, the beginning of the universe. This argument is as follows. Whatever began to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. Premise number one uses the law of causality. Non-being cannot cause being. In other words, from nothing, nothing comes. Since nothing is nothing, it can do nothing. Therefore, it can cause nothing. Hence, whatever began to exist needs a cause for its existence. Premise number two contends that the universe had a beginning. Scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe includes the second law of thermodynamics, also known as energy deterioration, and the Big Bang model. The second law of thermodynamics is one of the most firmly established laws of modern science. It states that the amount of usable energy in a closed system is running down. This means that someday in the finite future, all the energy in the universe will be useless unless there is intervention from outside the universe. In other words, if left to itself, the universe will have an end. But if the universe is going to have an end, it had to have a beginning. At one time in the finite past, all the energy in the universe was usable. Since the universe is winding down, it must have been wound up. The universe is not eternal, it had a beginning. Since it had a beginning, it needs a cause, for from nothing, nothing comes. Due to energy deterioration, if the universe is eternal, it would have reached a state of equilibrium in which no change is possible an infinite amount of time ago. All of the universe's energy would already have been used up. Obviously, this is not the case. Therefore, the universe had a beginning. The Big Bang model also indicates that the universe had a beginning. In 1929, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the universe is expanding at the same rate in all directions. As time moves forward, the universe is growing apart. But this means that if we go back in time, the physical universe would get smaller and smaller. Eventually, if we go back far enough in the past, the entire uni universe would be what scientists call a point of infinite density or a point of dimensionless space. However, if something is infinitely dense, it is non-existent, for existent things can only be finitely small. The same can be said for points of dimensionless space. If a point has no dimensions, it is non-existent, for it takes up no space. Of course, we're talking about the physical universe. If a point has no dimensions, it is non-existent for it takes up no space. Therefore, if the Big Bang model is correct, it shows that the universe began out of nothing a finite time ago. There have been two main attempts to refute the beginning of the universe. 
The first is called the steady state model. This view holds that the universe never had a beginning. Because of the mounting evidence for the Big Bang model, this view has been abandoned by most of its adherents. The second attempt to evade the beginning of the universe is called the oscillating model. This model teaches that at some point during the universe's expansion, gravity will halt the expansion and pull everything back together again. From that point, there will be another Big Bang. This process will be repeated over and over again throughout all eternity. However, the oscillating model fails. First, there is no known principle of physics that would reverse the collapse of the universe and cause another Big Bang. Second, scientific research has shown that the universe is not dense enough for gravity to pull it back together again. And third, even if it could be proven that several Big Bangs have occurred, the second law of thermodynamics would still require that there was a first Big Bang and therefore a last Big Bang. Many scientists accept the beginning of the universe but believe that it does not need a cause. The evidence proposed by these scientists consists of speculation dealing with quantum physics, the study of subatomic particles. Appeal is made to Heisenberg's principle of indeterminacy in order to claim that quantum particles pop into existence out of nothing entirely without a cause. However, Heisenberg's principle does not necessitate such an absurd interpretation. Simply because scientists cannot presently find the causes of, for quantum events does not mean that the causes do not exist. All that Heisenberg's principle states is that scientists are presently unable to accurately and simultaneously measure both the position and the momentum of a subatomic particle. If this principle proved that events can occur without causes, then this would destroy one of the pillars of modern science, the principle of causality. Every event must have an adequate cause. It seems obvious to me that the principle of causality is on firmer epistemological ground than the belief that things can pop into existence without a cause. Non-being cannot cause being. The universe had a beginning, then it needs a cause. Besides the scientific evidence, there is also philosophical evidence for the beginning of the universe. If the universe is eternal, then there would be an actual infinite number of events in time. However, as Zeno's paradoxes have shown, it is impossible to traverse an actual infinite set of points. If we assume the existence of an infinite amount of actual points between two locations, and that's a big assumption, then we can never get from location A to location B. Since no matter how many points we have traversed, there will still be an infinite number of points left. If the universe is eternal, then there must exist an actual infinite set of events in the past, but then it would be impossible to reach the present moment. Since the present moment has been reached, there cannot be an actual infinite set of events in the past. There could only be a finite number. Therefore, there had to be a first event, hence the universe had a beginning. It should also be noted that if it is possible for an actual infinite set to exist outside a mind, contradictions and absurdities would be generated. To illustrate this point, let's look at two infinite sets. Set A consists of all numbers, both odd and even. But set B contains only all the odd numbers. Set A and set B are equal since they both have an infinite number of members. Still, set A has twice the number of members as set B since set A contains both odd and even numbers while set B contains only odd numbers. It is a clear contradiction to say that set A and set B have an equal amount of members while set A has twice as many members as set B. 
Therefore, actual infinite sets cannot exist outside the mind. Actual sets existing outside the mind can only be potentially infinite, not actually infinite. These sets can be added to indefinitely. Still, we will never reach an actual infinite by successive addition. Therefore, the universe cannot have an actual infinite number of events in the past. The universe had a beginning. Since the universe had to have a beginning, it had to have a cause. For from nothing, nothing comes. But if the universe needs a cause, what if the cause of the universe also needs a cause? Could we not have an infinite chain of causes and effects stretching backwards in time throughout all eternity? Obviously, the answer is no. For we have already shown that an actual infinite set existing outside of a mind is impossible. Therefore, an infinite chain of causes and effects is also impossible. There had to be a first uncaused cause of the universe. This uncaused cause would be eternal without beginning or end. Only eternal and uncaused existence can ground the existence of the universe. Several attributes of the uncaused cause of the universe can be discovered through the examination of the universe. This debate hopefully is evidence that intelligent life exists in the universe. Since intelligence is a perfection found in the universe, the ultimate cause of the universe must also be an intelligent being, for intelligence cannot come from non-intelligence. No one has ever shown how intelligence could evolve from mindless nature. Morality also exists in the universe, for without morality, there would be no such thing as right and wrong. However, the moral judgments we make show that we do believe there are such things as right and wrong. Still, nature is non-moral. No one holds a rock morally responsible for tripping them. There is no way that mere molecules in motion could produce moral values. Since nature is non-moral but morality exists in the universe, the cause of the universe must be a moral being. Therefore, the uncaused cause of the universe must be an intelligent moral being. This means that God must be a personal being. Number two, the continuing existence of the universe. Experience shows us that limited dependent beings exist. These limited dependent beings need other beings for their continued existence. For example, I depend on air, water, and food to sustain my existence. However, adding limited dependent beings will never give us an independent and unlimited whole. Therefore, the sum total of limited dependent beings is itself limited and dependent. If each individual part of a floor is wood, then the whole floor will be wood. Likewise, if each part of the universe is dependent, then the entire universe is dependent. Hence, the ultimate cause of the continuing existence of all dependent, limited dependent beings must be unlimited and independent. There cannot be two or more unlimited and independent beings, since if there were, they would limit one another's existence, but then they would not be unlimited. Therefore, there can only be one unlimited and independent being. This being must have all its attributes in an unlimited way, otherwise it could not be an unlimited being. This being must be all-powerful, for he is the source of all the power in the universe. No other power can limit him. He is eternal, for he is not limited by time. He is everywhere present since he is not limited by space. He is immaterial since he is not limited by matter. This being must be all good since he is not limited by evil. He must also be all-knowing since he is not limited by ignorance. Since mindless nature works towards goals, 
such as acorns always becoming oak trees and not something else, there must be an intelligent designer overseeing natural processes. Without intelligent design, nature's processes would be left to chance. There would be no orderly patterns that could be described as natural laws. Therefore, this infinite and independent being, whom all finite independent beings depend upon for their continued existence, must be an intelligent being. Number three, the design and order found in the universe. The order, design, and complexity found in the universe strongly imply that the universe is not a random, chaotic throwing together of atoms. Rather, it is the product of intelligent design. And as the product of intelligent design, it necessitates the existence of an intelligent designer. Contemporary scientists have found numerous evidences for design in the universe. A few examples will suffice. First, the slightest variation in the expansion rate of the universe would render the universe incapable of sustaining life. Second, British scientists, or former evolutionists, Hoyle and Wickramasinghe, estimated that the chances of life evolving from the random shuffling of organic molecules is virtually zero. They calculated that there is only one chance in 10 to the 20th power to form a single enzyme and just one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power to produce the approximately 2,000 enzymes that exist. However, Hoyle and Regramasing point out that the production of enzymes is only one step in the generation of life. Therefore, they concluded there must be some type of cosmic intelligence to explain the origin of life. Hoyle compared the probability of life spontaneously generating from non-life as equivalent to the chances of a tornado randomly producing a Boeing 747 from a junkyard. The cell is the basic unit of life. The DNA molecule of a single-celled animal contains enough genetic information, complex information, to, f to fill one volume of an encyclopedia. An explosion in a print shop will never produce one volume of an encyclopedia by chance. That amount of information necessitates an intelligent cause. Also, the human brain contains more genetic information than the information found in the world's largest libraries. There is no way that this amount of information could be produced by mere chance. Intelligent intervention is needed. Third, astrophysicist Hugh Ross listed 25 narrowly defined parameters that the universe had to have in order for life to be possible. Ross also pointed out 32 narrowly defined parameters for life concerning the Earth, its moon, its sun, and its galaxy. For instance, if the distance between the Earth and the sun was to differ by just 2% in either direction, no life on Earth would be possible. These parameters for life on Earth clearly show evidence of design and purpose. Fourth, molecular biologist Michael Behe has shown that the irreducible complexity found on the molecular level cannot be explained by the atheistic evolutionary model. Intelligent design is the only adequate explanation. The theistic hypotheses of intelligent design is obviously more plausible than the atheistic hypotheses of random chance. Number four, the existence of absolute moral values. We all make moral value judgments when we call the actions of another person wrong. When we do this, we appeal to moral law. This moral law could not originate with each individual, for then we could not call the actions of another person, such as Adolf Hitler, wrong. The moral law is not a creation of each society, for when, then one society cannot call the actions of another society, 
such as Nazi Germany, wrong. The moral law does not come from a world consensus, for world consensus is often mistaken. The world once thought that the earth was flat, the sun revolved around the earth, and slavery was morally acceptable. Appealing to society or world consensus will never give us an adequate cause for the moral law and the moral judgments we make. Appealing to society or world consensus only quantitatively adds men and women. What we need is a moral law qualitatively above man. This moral law must be eternal and unchanging so that we can condemn the actions of the past, i.e. slavery, the Holocaust, etc. The moral law qualitatively above man is not descriptive of the way things are, as is the case with natural laws. The moral law must be prescriptive. It prescribes the way things ought to be. Prescriptive laws need a prescriber. Therefore, a moral lawgiver must exist, and this lawgiver must be eternal and unchanging. Number five, the absurdity of life without God. What hope can an atheist offer mankind? People on their deathbeds don't usually call an atheist to comfort them. Normally, a preacher or priest is summoned. Even if an atheist could guarantee us 70 years of happiness, what good would that be when compared with the eternity of non-existence that follows? If there is no God, then Hitler will not be punished for his evil deeds, and Mother Teresa will not be rewarded for her generous works of charity. If there is no God, then a million years from now it would make no difference if you were a Hitler or a Mother Teresa. Can life have any ultimate meaning if there is no God? If non-existence is what awaits us, can we really make sense of life? You live and then you die. There are no eternal consequences. Hitler and Mother Teresa have the same destiny. We all finish our meaningless journeys in total nothingness. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell admitted that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origins, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Immediately following that statement, Russell referred to his atheistic philosophy as the firm foundation of unyielding despair. Why well, have conferences if that's the case? Without God, life is without meaning. However, if there is a God, then there is hope. The God of the Bible guarantees the defeat of evil and the triumph of good. He guarantees that Hitler will receive his punishment and Mother Teresa will receive her reward. God gives life meaning, for how we choose to live our lives on earth brings eternal consequences. God is our reason to be optimistic about the future. Only He can overcome our fear of death. Only He can defeat evil. Without God, meaningless existence is all we face. Without God, there is no hope. Number six, the failure of naturalism. I have shown that naturalism cannot adequately explain the beginning of the universe its continuing existence, the design found in the universe, or the existence of absolute moral values. Naturalism cannot give meaning to life, but there are more problems for naturalism, for it cannot adequately explain the laws of logic and mathematics, though both are needed for scientific investigation to, be, to begin. 
Naturalism has no way to justify the sanctity of human life. It cannot offer a plausible explanation for human free will and human responsibility. In conclusion, theism is more reasonable than naturalism. Naturalism either tries to explain away the aspects of reality we have discussed, or it acknowledges these aspects of reality but says they are just there. Naturalism becomes either an explaining away of the evidence or a total non-explanation, whereas theism offers a reasonable explanation of the evidence. Hence, theism is more reasonable than naturalism. Thank you.